Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hello, and thank you for joining our conversation this week. You know, each week we strive to talk about how Christianity intersects with culture and how Christians can stand at that intersection with love and wisdom and discernment. You know, and we've explored popular trends, generational divides, recent studies, gosh, advances in technology and within the medical field, politics, and I could just keep going on. I won't, though. But And what we've also done a handful of times is talk about how the modern worldviews um, of the day affect how people think about their life and, and their purpose, their priorities, what they want to leave behind. And while you'll often hear the term postmodernism um, when describing the prominent worldview of our day, there are other worldviews provided by other religions that are also incredibly influential, um, at least in our modern context. And I would say in the Western world, next to Christianity, it's Eastern religions that have swept our society with a huge wave of influence, and yet in a manner so subtle that most people don't even know that they have subscribed. So I want to unpack that today. Before we get into any specific Specific Eastern religion. Jim, would you just give us a taste of spaces in our culture in which you see their influence? I think that might perk up the ears of our listeners a bit and persuade them to want to hear more. Let me give you just one example. Uh, I recently read about a new church that meets on Sunday mornings at 1130. Uh, by 1125, people are gathering to meet and they're hugging on each other and greeting. And, and uh, except sitting, instead of sitting in a pew or a chair, they sit on the floor. And once they sit on the floor, the goal is to set an intention, to connect to something higher than themselves. They can devote the time to someone they love, uh, someone who needs strength, someone who needs healing, uh, or their sense of God, or feeling like peace. Then the music begins, but it's the music of breathing. The point is to breathe for something beyond you. It's often called the victorious breath. Uh, you breathe in through your nose and out through your uh mouth, uh, constricting the throat slightly as you, as you exhale to create kind of a rasping oceanic sound. The goal is to synchronize breath with movement as you build body heat. And when everyone is breathing this way together, the room reverberates with that deep cosmic oceanic sound. Then comes the message. Uh, as the teacher guides inhales and exhales and transitions the congregation uh, from one posture to the next, there's a steady stream of messages that are offered in order to build a personal sense of strength or ease. Things like share your energy or remember that you are a gift to this world, so embrace that. Uh, your way of being is a choice. Then there's singing. Only it's not really singing as much as as, as chanting. Uh, every practice begins and ends with three chants of the word Aum, a vibration treated as the primordial seed of the universe. Then comes meditation. There's no guided prayer, but a guided meditation for 15 minutes following the hour-long practice. 
often the goal of the meditation is to find um, stillness within yourself in this darkened room, to feel your body relax and to observe your thoughts as they pass. Now, where am I getting all this from? Well, it was from an article uh, describing it. And the title of it was simply called Welcome to Yoga Church. Uh, Only it wasn't trying to be a church. It was simply a yoga class. But the writer just called it a church because she said, that's what it felt like to me. And it should have because her confusion ran deeper than she realized. Because whether she knew it or not, she had participated in a deeply religious event. She had just gone through the practice of Hinduism. Hmm. We did a podcast on yoga, so hopefully we'll link that in the show notes in case you're intrigued and want to hear more um, about Jim's thoughts on that. But for the sake of today's conversation, when we talk about Eastern religions, we're not talking about every Eastern religion. So let's narrow this a bit for our listeners. What are the most influential Eastern religions, both in the world, but then also in the West? And maybe you could tell us how many people in the U.S. practice those religions? Yeah, there is a sense where we can talk about Eastern religions as a whole. Um, meaning, you know, religions that organized in the Eastern world, such as India, China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. That would include uh, Jainism and Sikhism and Shinto and Taoism and Confucianism. But the most influential in the West are, without a doubt, there's two, Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is influential not only because of the number of practicing Buddhists in the United States, and the estimates are there between three and four million, but uh, and the vast majority of which are Asian Americans, but because of the number of, of celebrities uh, who embrace the ideas, you know, Scientology, which we've done a, a podcast on, has tried to build its name on celebrity converts, but they've got nothing on Buddhism. Uh, let me just give you just a handful of names linked to its practices: Jennifer Aniston, Orlando Bloom, uh, Kate Bosworth, the late David Bowie. Jeff Bridges, Penelope Cruz, Richard Gere, Goldie Hawn, Kate Hudson, Angeline Jolie, Jennifer Lopez, Brad Pitt, Keanu Reeves, uh, Steven Seagal, Sting, Uma Thurman, uh, the late Tina Turner, Tiger Woods. Uh, Now, Hinduism, though, is influential in a different way. I doubt you could name a single Hollywood celebrity Hindu. But when it comes to Hindu ideas, oh my goodness, that's another story. Uh, Those are famous and permeate our culture. From the Star Wars films to the writings of Eckhart Tolle, from Shirley MacLaine and the New Age movement to Marianne Williamson's uh, Course in Miracles, yoga, yoga pants. (laughs) Hinduism is one of the most influential philosophies in our culture. Hmm. Well, let's start then with Hinduism for no other reason than because it's the older of the two. So can you tell our listeners a bit about its history, some of its main ideas? Yeah. Uh, Hinduism has no clearly identified founder. Uh, There's no prophet. There's no historical events marking its beginning. uh, No institutional structure. No real creed. Uh, And while the philosophy of Hinduism is influential, only about 13% of the world's population Uh, are practicing Hindus. Most live in India. In fact, that's what the word Hindu means. A lot of people don't realize that that's Persian for Indian. Uh, So it's not surprising that the nation of India produced the person who's probably the most famous Hindu to have ever lived, uh, Gandhi. Hindus have spiritual teachers. They're known as gurus. 
And they also have wandering holy men known as swamis. Uh, they have sacred writings such as the Vedas, uh, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, but they are best known and most influential for three big ideas. And whenever I have, have taught on Hinduism or tried to convey Hinduism, to really get at it, you've got to get these three big ideas. So let's let's walk through these. Um, and these ideas represent Hinduism. You just may not have realized that they that they were Hindu ideas. The first idea is the force. Uh, that's Hinduism. Uh, for the Hindu, there's no such thing as a one all-powerful personal God who created us. Instead, ultimate reality is Brahman. Uh, this is an impersonal oneness that is something like an impersonal force of existence. Uh, that force can manifest itself in the forms of many gods, uh, actually, one estimate is that there are over 330 million different Hindu gods. Uh, the main three, though, are Brahma, the creator, and Vishnu, the preserver, and Siva, the destroyer. That's what the, man the mantra Aum is all about. It's actually spelled A-U-M, not O-H-M or O-M, but A-U-M. And those three letters symbolically represent Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Uh, saying that word... Um, is essentially calling up their essence to worship them. But behind all of those gods is one big force uh, of reality or, or reality, which is Brahman. Uh, not to make Star Wars a primer on Hinduism, even though it's based on Hindu and New Age ideas, to be sure. Um, but you can think of Brahman as the force and the Jedi as the gods. Hmm. And James Cameron has said that his movie Avatar was based on the idea of one of the Hindu gods taking human form and draws from other aspects of Hindu philosophy as well, which if you've seen the films, you know that that's true. So while there are many of the manifestations of Brahman through the millions of gods that the Hindus worship, Brahman itself, ultimate reality is not personal. It's just a force, which means that our true selves, or as they would say, our Atman, is at one with Brahman. Our essence is the same. It's identical to that of Brahman. And they're thinking all is one and one is all. Or you could say that the force is all and all is the force. Or as you hear many New Age thinkers put it, God is all and all is God. Our problem, they say, is that we aren't aware of our divine nature. That's the nature of our problem. We aren't aware that we are part of and one with Brahman. As a result, we're bound by this life. Okay, that's what the law of karma is about, which is the second big idea uh, within Hinduism, karma is the sum total of all of your life actions, good and bad. If you don't liberate yourself from this life and embrace your divinity, you're bound to this life and the next life and the next life and the life after that. Hindus do not believe that time is linear, going from a beginning to an end, which would be a Christian idea. Instead, they believe it is a never ending circle of life, death and rebirth. And yes, that is where the Lion King got that phrase. Is it's a Hindu idea. The Lion King's another Hindu-influenced movie. Um, the circle of life. Mm. Which brings up the third big idea of Hinduism, which is the idea of reincarnation. Uh, according to Hindu thought, right now, uh, we're all reaping the consequences of what we did in an earlier life. If you had a good karma in a past life, you're living a good life now. If not, your life will not be so good right now. 
And your karma will even determine what you will be in your next life. You can come back a human, but you could also come back an animal, an insect, the side of a mountain, a rock, a slug. What you will be reincarnated into in your next life depends on your karma earned in this life. This is one reason why all forms of life are held sacred to the Hindu, especially the cow, uh, which is the symbol of, of Mother Earth. The solution to all of this is to be liberated from this wheel of life, death, and rebirth by realizing that you as a self are an illusion. Or if you remember the Matrix movies, which are also based on Hindu philosophy, uh, you may recall the scene from the first film where Neo goes to the Oracle and talks with a little boy who's able to bend a spoon. And Neo asks the boy how he did it. And he said, the secret is to remember there is no spoon. Everything is an illusion. Everything is a matrix. Only the impersonal oneness of the energy force of Brahman is real. Uh, so you should strive to detach yourself from this life and attain enlightenment. Again, like Neo freeing himself from the matrix. Mm -hmm. You can try to do that through various forms of yoga, action and ritual, uh, through knowledge and meditation, uh, through devotion. In fact, that's what the word yoga means, union with or yoking with something. And for Hindus and, and yoga, that, that means union with Brahman. But however you try and, and strap it on, the goal is to lose yourself. It's to lose your identity and the universal identity of the one self or the force of Brahman. Or as George Lucas would put it, to let yourself go and feel the force. So that's Hinduism. Mm. There's a couple of things you said that I'm going to circle back to in a minute. But let's talk now about Buddhism. And again, I realize that we only have time for a very brief synopsis of these religions, but I mean, I would say just because we can't cover it all doesn't mean we can't hit the headlines. So that's what we're trying to do today. Um, so tell us about the history of Buddhism, some of its main beliefs. Uh, well, um, Buddhism came from Hinduism, mm -hmm. uh, which also believes in, in um, uh, from one large divine essence that we are to tap into through the quest for enlightenment. It also believes in reincarnation. It also believes in karma. It does have a little bit more theology to it, though. Uh, Siddhartha Gautama, now known as the Buddha, began his spiritual search in order to begin uh, to find the cause of suffering and how best to eliminate suffering. In order to gain enlightenment on this issue and from the suffering, he first devoted himself to extreme pleasure, trying everything the world had to offer that was pleasurable. That didn't work. Then he devoted himself to extreme asceticism. Uh, that means he deprived himself and his body of food, pleasure, comfort hoping that would somehow help him to, to break through the spiritual barrier, and it didn't work either. It was only when he sat under a tree uh, in deep meditation that enlightenment finally came to him, and that is the meaning of the word Buddha. It means the enlightened one. Uh, and that enlightenment, known as the middle way, uh, because it involved neither giving into pleasure or giving into asceticism, is marked by the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Now, the Four Noble Truths uh, form the heart of Buddhist philosophy. And the Four Noble Truths are these. The first one is that uh, life is full of pain and suffering. The second is that suffering is caused uh, by the desire, our desire and thirst for pleasure or for existence. Uh, the third Noble Truth 
is that the way to liberate yourself from suffering is by eliminating all desires. Uh, we have to stop wanting. We have to stop craving. We have to stop thirsting. Those things that are our illusion of actually being a self and what our self tells us we should want. In other words, the idea that everything is impermanent and ever-changing. There is no you. There is no, no me. There is no I. There is no universe. It's all illusion. The fourth noble truth is that our desire can be eliminated by following the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness, and right meditation. And life on the way to enlightenment is a life that devotes itself to those eight attitudes and actions. And the ultimate goal of all of this is to reach the state of nirvana. Uh, nirvana is to be uh, liberated from the endless cycle of death and rebirth by eliminating all desire and all attachment to an illusion of self. That is enlightenment. And it often happens through meditation in flashes of insight. Um, when you're fully enlightened, that's when you enter nirvana. And that comes by following the Eightfold Path. Well, after the Buddha's death, um, the Buddhist religion did not hang together very well. Uh, and today there are many, many branches of Buddhism. Uh, there's Theravada Buddhism, which is found in countries like Cambodia and, and Laos and Sri Lanka and, and Thailand. You've got uh, Vajrayana Buddhism that exists primarily in Mongolia and Tibet and uses techniques from the world of the occult to try and develop spiritual power. That branch has captured the most attention uh, because of Buddhists, the plight of Buddhists in Tibet under Chinese rule, but also because its leader in exile, the Dalai Lama, hmm. has become something of a pop culture celebrity. Uh, but to Tibetan Buddhists, he is far more than a celebrity. He's what they call a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is someone who has attained enlightenment, but they refuse to enter in. So out of compassion for the masses of people, who have not yet reached enlightenment, they refuse to enter nirvana in order to come back and guide others along the path. These figures are often worshiped at shrines or prayed to like gods. Uh, it is believed that bodhisattvas can actually transfer some of their own good karma, you know, to help people along the way. Um, this is what Tibetan Buddhists believe the Dalai Lama to be, the 14th reincarnation of an enlightened Buddha who, as a bodhisattva, refused nirvana in order to help others reach enlightenment. Mm. Then there's Mahayana Buddhism, that is the primary form of Buddhism in places like China and Hong Kong and uh, Vietnam and Japan and Taiwan. Um, and then there's branches off the major branches. I know we don't want to get too much into detail, but you got the animists who believe in all kinds of spirits and influence and control people's lives. And then you have the Zen Buddhists, who meditate on the vast emptiness within themselves. So it's really hard to nail Buddhism down. I, I, in fact, I remember reading of a guy named, uh, a Dutchman named De Wettering, who went to Japan to study Buddhism. And he, he tells of going to a garden and asking a man named Han San if he was a Buddhist. And Han San said, I, I study Zen Buddhism. And he said, yes, yes, I know, but, but are you a Buddhist? And Hansan said, well, you know that I don't exist. I change all the time. Every moment I am different. 
I exist in the way a cloud exists. A cloud is a Buddhist too. You call me Hansan and pretend that I was yesterday what I shall be today. But that's your business. In reality, there is no Hansan. How can an unreal Hansan be a Buddhist? And Devettering said, look, all I'm asking is whether or not you're a member of the Buddhist Brotherhood. And Hansan replied, is a cloud a member of the sky? And that pretty much ended the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, I'm really shocked that Americans in particular would be attracted to any type of, you know, lose yourself or lose your identity or, you know, forsake pleasure, you know, type of worldview. I mean, we're all about making a name for yourself and branding yourself and fighting your way to the top and doing whatever makes you happy. So what's the attraction to these Eastern religions in particular? I think I, th- I think there's I think there's two main reasons, and because I agree, I think everything you just said is really fair. It does at first puzzle, but I think there are two things that, that are the West finds attractive. First is the basic foundational desire that we have for a spiritual life, hmm. uh, and without a doubt, Eastern religions provide. Now hang with me here, the feeling of spirituality. Uh, the Tibetan mountaintop experiences, the shaved heads, the flowing orange robes, the exotic locations, the incense, the chanting, the meditation, it all just seems to just drip of spirituality and to hold the promise of the experience of the spiritual. But that's often all that it is, uh, the outward appearance or feel of spirituality, not spirituality itself. Uh, I read of an Eastern holy man who covered himself with ashes as a sign of humility and regularly sat on a prominent street corner in a city. And when tourists asked permission to take his picture, he'd rearrange the ashes in order to give the best image of being destitute and humble and then tell them they could now take their pictures. Was that true humility? Was that true spirituality? Or was that posturing and going through the motions? Well, I think a second appeal of the East to the West is that it's an easy spirituality, uh, empty of any real accountability. You don't have to join anything. You don't have to really believe in anything. With Buddhism, just the Four Noble Truths, which, I mean, I could sign off on most of those, uh, and the Eightfold Path, pretty generic. Uh, With Hinduism, it's buying into a vague philosophy of a cosmic force of life as a never-ending circle and the need to just try to do better in this life than the one you just came out of. Uh, And that appeals to people who want to be spiritual-ish, but not spiritual. At Mech, you know, we talk a lot about Christianity being about a relationship, not a religion. Meaning it's not about a set of do's and don'ts, empty practices or rituals, as much as it's about entering into a life-changing relationship with the living God through Jesus. There's a real God who can be encountered and we are to relate to. And this God has spoken. Uh, He has given truth about himself and for our lives. But what some people want is spirituality without the God, Mm -hmm. without the absolute, without the authority, without the transcendent standing over them. That means spirituality that is just a set of feelings or emotions. And that ends up being little more than the sound of your own voice. And we really like being our own voice and our Mm. own gods. So I think that's the appeal. 
Yes, you're very right about that. Now, I'm sure that you and I would both agree that there are quite a number of really helpful beliefs that are couched within these two, you know, worldviews. Um, you mentioned, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. I mean, there's a lot there that as a Christian I could sign off on and think, yeah, that's really helpful. But at the same time, you know, when you approach them with um, as you always encourage like us um, through this podcast, like with intellectual honesty, and I would add even devotional honesty, you have to admit that there are some major tension points between them and Christianity. So can you talk about some of those? Capital M major. Mm. <laughs> While religions from the East can be attractive, there really are some important tension points within the Christian faith. The Dalai Lama himself has stated publicly that you cannot reconcile Buddhism and Christianity. And I appreciate it as honesty. Uh, the central doctrines of Buddhism and Christianity are not compatible. He has said himself that you cannot be a Buddhist Christian or a Christian Buddhist. And he's right. So let me give you the three key differences between Hinduism and Buddhism, Eastern religions in general, quite frankly, and the Christian faith. The first has to do with a personal God. Christianity believes in a personal God. Buddhism does not even believe in a higher being. Hindus believe in millions of gods that together just make up an impersonal force. In essence, both Hinduism and Buddhism are atheistic religions. They are. So that's kind of a big divide. Is there a god or not? Are you a theist or an atheist? The idea of a personal god is at the heart of the Christian faith, a god who loves us and cares about us and wants to be in a personal relationship with us, a god who knows our name, which raises the second huge difference between Christianity and the religions of the East. Um, what is our greatest problem? Uh, to the Hindu, the greatest problem is our bad karma in a previous life. So work hard on this one and make, you know, maybe, maybe you can break free and become part of the divine energy of the universe. To the Buddhist, the biggest problem is that you actually believe you are a life. So the goal is to get enlightened and realize you aren't even really here. <laughs> um, Christianity says, uh, no, our deepest problem is that we're estranged from the God who created us, which means we have some real issues to face. You know, we're real, live human beings who are on this planet living out the one and only life we've been given to live. And the heart of Jesus' message to the world is that we are not right with God, our creator, but we can be. And this is why you know, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they will be filled. Righteousness simply means a rightness, a, a rightness with God. It's the desire to see God's standards, God's values established in every area of your life as a result of your relationship with him, um, where he takes up residence in your life. You see, the heart of the human problem is not the need for enlightenment or reincarnation. It, the problem is our sin. Uh, the one word we hate to hear, the one thing we try to escape, the one thing we try to deny, the one thing we don't want to own, face, or admit to. In truth, though, it's the great reality of our life, and it's the heart of the problem of our life. Um, our biggest need is forgiveness. In her book, Traveling Mercies, Anne Lamott uh, writes of a doctor friend of hers who used to shoot up sodium pentothal in his garage and then make a run for the bedroom where he would pass out for the night. He was convinced he had a problem with insomnia, not drugs. Another of her friends had to have surgery to remove pebbles from his forehead 
and the tiny stones got embedded while he was smashing his face against the pavement at the end of a cocaine binge. When he told her about his operation, he was angry because he said people now are going to think he had a cocaine problem. If we fail to see the nature of our problems, what the nature of our challenges really are, what the essence of our struggles really are, we'll never be able to address them. We'll just live a life in denial. We need a personal God, and there is one, and we need to see that we are not right with him, um, but we can be. Which brings us to the third major divide. How do we deal with our brokenness? Uh, Christianity believes that the sin and failure in our life can be met with grace and forgiveness from God. And that reaching the ultimate goal, eternity with God, is not something we have to earn, but something that is given to us freely uh, out of the love of God, you know, if we'll just come to him for that relationship. Uh, not so for those buying into karma uh, and reincarnation. There's a brutal, vicious cycle where all you get is what you deserve and what you've earned, good, bad, and ugly. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. There is no mercy. As a result, you are alone with your life. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with um, the famous story Jesus told of the prodigal son. Uh, you know, uh, a son left his father and he squandered his resistance and comes back and receives forgiveness. That was a terrible Cliff Notes version of what to me is one of the most moving stories of grace in the New Testament. Uh, but if anyone is unfamiliar with it, uh, you'll find it uh, tucked away in Luke's biography of Jesus in the 15th chapter. But Jesus told that story uh, for one reason. He wanted to see us to see the heart of God toward us, uh, his children, a heart full of grace and forgiveness and mercy. And it is a story of grace. It is not a story of karma. It's anti-karma. Um, well, here's the story based on karma, according to an ancient Asian legend that tells the story of another man who had a wayward son. The boy became involved with the wrong crowd who persuaded him to join them in a robbery of his own father. And after the robbery was over, his friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt of the crime alone. Well, deserted by his friends and realizing he had betrayed his father, he went home and begged his forgiveness. And it was granted. The father called all the members of the family together to celebrate the reconciliation and return of his son. And when all had enjoyed the banquet to the fullest, the father stood and lifted his cup of rice wine for a toast to his son. And as the son lifted up his rice wine and drank it, after he did, he suddenly grabbed his throat and fell lifeless along the table, foaming at the mouth. The father had poisoned the son's cup. The whole banquet was to make a public statement of his revenge against his son. That's the difference between karma and grace. Only Christianity contends that God's love is unconditional and you don't have to earn his approval. Mm. So in closing then, what would be your twofold advice for first, like finding common ground with followers of Eastern religions that we could really productively and winsomely build on? But then on the other side of that, protecting ourselves from aspects of their influence that might become gateways into non-Christian doctrine or beliefs. Well, I know, I know that we've done a podcast on yoga before, but let me let me go ahead and use yoga because it's you know it's the most common thing out there that people can relate to and may have engaged in and maybe the biggest bridge between Christians and Hindus. So let's use yoga as a foil 
to try and answer that. There's no doubt it's entered into innocently by millions as a way to pursue physical health. Uh, people find the, the stretching and the, and, the, and the breathing techniques to be positive for their lives, both physically and emotionally. They don't think of it as a Hindu practice, but it's just a yoga class with yoga not meaning anything more than a particular kind of workout. And one of the reasons why we're so low key about its Hindu origins and yoga being a Hindu religious act is because one of the big differences between the East and the West in terms of culture is that in the West, we tend to be word people, doctrine people, idea people, beliefs people. That's what faith is for us, what we believe. Not so much in the East. Uh, they practice people, they're experienced people. Uh, we think our way into spirituality. They tend to act their way into it. That's why when you take a yoga class, they don't begin in a Western way. If they did, they'd say, by the way, you're getting ready to enter into a Hindu act. And here are all the Hindu philosophies and beliefs that are behind everything we're going to do. So please read this and sign it as a disclaimer before you participate. If they did, it would freak us out. Uh, but it's just seen as a practice. So we walk into it with our eyes wide shut. Uh, this is why the movements used in yoga are deeply symbolic gestures that express religion and, and indoctrinate people into a religion through experience. That's its whole purpose. It's evangelistic. In fact, if you go to India and you talk to Hindus there, which I have, um, it's seen as the primary evangelistic tool of Hinduism for the West. Uh, they are very upfront about it. And they love that yoga is taking over America. They love it. Uh, because they are introducing people to its ideas, beliefs, and worldviews without people knowing they're being evangelized. The whole purpose of yoga is to indoctrinate people into Hinduism and to create a oneness with the impersonal force of the universe as manifested in the hundreds of millions of gods. To break you into the idea of your own godhood. Even the most commonly practiced type of yoga in America, which is uh, hatha, it's considered a path toward enlightenment. Uh, for Hinduism, that means a liberation, not only into your own divinity and to make contact with the power of the universe, but also to break you free from the cycle of reincarnation. Many yoga teachers, teachers water that down just a little bit and make it a point where you achieve stillness uh, in your mind or you understand the true nature of the world and your place in it. But that's just when it's being served up soft on the front end. Um, it's, it's a spiritual exercise and everything about yoga is designed to serve the Hindu spiritual journey. Even the yoga positions have meaning. Uh, for example, many yoga practices open with a series of positions known as the Surya Namaskar. What people don't often know is that in those are a series of positions designed to greet, uh, Surya, the Hindu sun god. So is it okay for a Christian to do yoga? Well, if you take a yoga class that's tied to its Hindu roots with Hindu philosophy littered throughout, well then, you know, including Hindu chants to the pagan gods they believe form the universe, then no, it's not okay. If you're being called to make references to a life force or cosmic energy, and you end by greeting each other with the words namaste, uh, which is Sanskrit for I bow to the God within you, uh, no, it's not okay. <laughs> you know, if you're encouraged to repeat the sacred Hindu word Om, which Hindus and Buddhists believe is the primordial sound that brought the universe into being and lift up the three main Hindu gods in worship, no, it's not okay.
if you're hearing phrases like breathe in positive energy and breathe out negative energy or focus on the third eye or get in touch with the divinity within you, it's not okay. Hindu yoga is aimed at transforming human consciousness to experience an energy tied to Hindu gods, which means you are not dabbling with simply a false religion. You're dabbling with the occult. And that is true of other Eastern religious practices, which we won't have time to get into, such as feng shui uh, or even some forms of alternative medicine. If it's about tapping into some kind of spiritual energy or some type of personal energy within you, that is a worldview that comes from the occult, not the Bible. So the bottom line is this. Uh, when you're attempting to call upon or tap into a power that is not the power of the biblical God, there's only one other source. That's the evil one. And you're opening yourself up to the world of the occult, which is just nightmarish. So don't do it. So what about, as you kind of mentioned in the question, the positive sides or how can you navigate that? Well, I, I think let's keep with yoga. I think that's something that you can engage with, but you need to do it in a very particular way. A yoga class that is stripped of its origins, stripped of its Hindu philosophy and reduced to the stretches and the breathing uh, can be just a physical exercise. Nothing demonic about putting your leg over your neck. It might hurt like hell, but doesn't mean it is from hell. Um, there are even Christian yoga classes uh, where everything from Hinduism is replaced with Christian alternatives. Uh, yoga that is led and informed with a Christian worldview also handles the meditative element differently. And well, it should, because in Eastern practices and uh, uh, Hinduism particularly, the goal of meditation is to, to empty yourself, empty your mind of everything. That's a very occult idea. Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's filling yourself, filling your mind with the truth of God. So really, just like the martial arts can be stripped of much of the Eastern philosophy and religious moorings and become a healthy sport or workout regimen, so can something like yoga. So I think that would be an example to answer your question of how you might could walk through it um, properly. Yeah. Well, that was a lot fast, <laughs> um, but I appreciate, yeah, how how succinctly um, you described Hinduism and Buddhism. And I think I would just add <clears throat> that, you know, as we have these conversations about, you know, other worldviews and, you know, whether they're based in religious thought or not, you know, I always think about the advice to just know what you believe. Like, it's so easy to... Um, it's so easy to fall prey to other ideas when you don't have a firm sense of what you believe yourself. And so that's, that's, that's the other side of this coin, not only learning about, you know, other, other perspectives, but knowing your own so well that, and I've heard you share before, you know, with, when it comes to being able to spot like counterfeit bills, you know, you don't have to be able to spot every single counterfeit bill. You just have to know what the real one looks like and then you'll be able to spot them. And so I feel like I always have that in the back of my mind whenever we have these conversations of, you know, do I know my own faith, you know, well enough to be able to spot where things are, um, differ from what I, yeah, from what I know um, the Bible might say. So I don't know, I just hope that's a, a bit of encouragement, um, as we continue to have conversations like this, there are tons of worldviews that we haven't covered yet. I'm sure we'll get to eventually on the podcast, but this was a really helpful one today. So thanks Jim. And thank you guys for listening.